Welcome to the Activist Insight Podcast, Beyond the Boardroom, a supplement to our monthly podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Here we discuss shareholder activism with some of the industry's top experts. I'm Ilana Duray, a financial reporter with Activist Insight. Earlier this month, at a special event in Toronto, we released Activist Investing in Canada 2019, a special report in association with Kingsdale Advisors and Goodman's. The report looks at 2018's record-breaking level of activism, a spike in interest in the gold sector, and the dynamics behind recent settlements. Wes Hall and Amy Friedman of Kingsdale and John Feldman at Goodman's share their perspectives in the report, which is available to download on the resources section of our website. Today, we are chatting with Patricia Olasker, a partner at another Canadian law firm, Davies Ward Phillips and Weinberg. Patricia specializes in shareholder activism and M&A, including in the mining and cannabis sectors. Today, Patricia talks to us about activism in Canada during the first half of the year. Hi, Patricia. Welcome to the show. The cannabis market has boomed over the last year. What opportunities does this bring for activists? Well, I mean, the cannabis industry is pretty interesting. You know, although medical cannabis has been legal here for quite some time, it's only since October that recreational cannabis has been legal. So the industry is still pretty nascent and it's got all of those characteristics of a new industry, you know, high percentage of retail investors, incredible stock price volatility, high valuation, and, you know, more than its share of instances of, you know, poor governance, bad disclosure, misconduct. So these are conditions that aren't actually ideal for traditional activism. What we've seen to date is a brand of activism that's been led by shareholder owners who've been unhappy with management and looking for liquidity and who have forced companies to sell themselves. So we saw that with Canamed, which was forced by its shareholders to sell itself to Aurora. That whole drama repeated itself with MedRelief shortly after that. So that kind of shareholder-led activism is already you know, a, a robust feature of, of the industry. But more recently, we've seen signs of change. So we're starting to see professional investors move into the space. There are some now cannabis-focused, professionally managed funds. Maybe Capital is one example of, of those. And recently, its managing director, John Caden, joined the board of a Canadian public cannabis company called CanTrust. And you have to wonder, I mean, nobody knows, but you have to wonder what preceded you know, their involvement at the board level. And then on top of that, we're seeing hedge funds, including activist hedge funds, starting to enter the space as investors. And so as ownership cycles into the hands of these professional investors, and when we start to see the inevitable reset of valuations, you know, down to more normal levels reflecting earnings, I think this will set the stage for more traditional activism. You know, we'll expect to see that in the coming months. So to clarify, are we seeing any traditional activism in the cannabis sector yet? You know, I think we've seen the beginnings of it. So very recently, you know, Nelson Peltz of Tryon turned up at Aurora uh, as an investor and a strategic advisor. Again, none of the backstory was ever revealed, but he's a notorious activist investor. And I think it's significant that he's turned up at Aurora, which is the second largest of the Canadian public cannabis companies. And then even more interestingly, Mick McGuire of Mercado, which holds about 3% of a cannabis company called Acreage Holdings, has gone public opposing the acquisition of that company by another company in that space. So that might actually be the first instance of, you know, true traditional activism in the cannabis sector. So I think the trend is now evident and I expect we'll see more of that. Now, short sellers have been active in the cannabis sector, given the high valuations. 
How can companies protect themselves against their accusations? So this sort of thing really has been rampant in the Canadian industry. And, you know, there have been a number of high-profile targets, Afria, Hexo, and, and really all of the best-known names, I think, in the Canadian cannabis industry have been targeted at one time or another by short sellers. And it makes sense, you know, that activists, short sellers are attracted to situations where price exceeds fundamental value. So this is, you know, the industry is a magnet. And then the good guys, and, you know, there are good guys and bad guys amongst activist short sellers. The good guys, you know, being attracted to the target, then do the work to determine what's going on here. Are there disclosure issues, accounting issues, uh, or other issues that might be at work? And in some ways, I think they've been kind of a positive force in, in the market because they have moderated the bubble that has characterized this market. When our clients are targeted, and, you know, ask us how they can protect themselves, you know, I think the answer is really through transparency. So transparency around disclosure, uh, around accounting, around related party transactions and the like, those have been the issues that really have drawn fire from the, the, the short activists. Moving away from the cannabis sector, I want to look at the mining space for a bit. Is the mining sector braced for another round of campaigns this year? Or do you think there will be more settlements? You know, I, I think they are braced uh, for another round of activism. Ever since Paulson you know, launched his critique of the Canadian gold sector in 2017, I think the industry has been under intense pressure from activists who've been complaining about, you know, poor total shareholder returns, value destructive acquisitions, cronyism on boards. All of those traits continue to affect a segment of the industry. And there's a real spotlight now that's been shone on the sector. And so there's no reason to think that activism will abate in that space. Will there be more settlements? You know, it was interesting on Detour, that was a situation where, you know, for many observing it from the outside, it appeared at a situation where management settles, but they just didn't. They decided to march, you know, all the way down with the ship, you know, refusing to settle even, even when companies, I think, in other sectors might have. And I think it might be a characteristic of mining companies and the, you know, the type of rugged individual who who is in the management and on the boards of these companies, that they are more kind of resistant to the notion of settlement. So we may in fact not see a great number of settlements and in fact see contests go all the way down to the wire. Speaking of the Detour Gold situation, last year, Paulson and co. pushed Detour to sell despite there being no bidder in sight. Should other miners be worried that something similar can happen to them? Yeah, I actually think this year there's a huge wave of consolidation kind of rippling through the Canadian mining sector, the gold sector in particular. And for those companies that are underperforming, I think they're going to find that they're under pressure, you know, to ride that consolidation wave and, you know, make themselves targets. So I think we'll we'll see more rather than less of that. The activist community also talked a lot about ESG last year. Have miners experienced the wave of ESG concerns from shareholders, especially environmental concerns? Yeah, so, you know, that's one of those questions where I kind of dispute the proposition. In other words, I don't think traditional activists are really pushing an ESG agenda. I mean, maybe, you know, where the issue is directly related to the bottom line, they might be, but that typically isn't the case, at least not, you know, directly or on any kind of near-term horizon basis. So that conversation is not happening amongst the traditional activists. Where it is occurring, of course, is, you know, in the community of large institutional investors who take a different, more societally oriented view 
value of investing. So are companies preparing themselves for these ESG issues that may come their way? I am not seeing that amongst the companies that we advise in this space. And it's partly because where ESG issues are important to the bottom line, or in the case of mining companies, important to their social license to operate, they're already on top of those issues. Uh, and so I'm not seeing a great scramble to, on the part of our clients at least, to um, position themselves for this issue. What we are seeing is the development of an advisory community around those issues. I mean, there, you know, there's, a, I think, an increased emphasis on providing advisory services in that space. In what other sectors are you seeing activism in Canada? Well, I think, you know, some of the most interesting things that we saw or are seeing in the current year really have nothing to do with either mining or cannabis. One of the situations that I was involved in recently involved Methanex Corporation. So this is a Canadian public company whose sole line of business is the production of methanol. And, you know, what was very interesting about that situation is that the activist here was not an activist at all, but a traditional long-only invest, a UK pension fund that had never engaged in activism before and that was kind of driven to resort to a proxy contest by what they perceived to be management's high-handed disregard for their concerns. This is an example of a trend that I think we're seeing on both sides of the border and really around the world, the, you know, the emergence of the traditional long-only shareholder as the new activist. The other situation that was interesting, again, not in the cannabis or mining sector, involved trans Alta. So this is a company in the power generation sector, and it was set upon by a couple of activists, uh, Mangrove and Bluescape out of the U.S. Together, they owned about 10% of uh, Transalta, and they're very critical of management and management strategy. In response, and I thought this was an interesting way to address this type of issue, management of Transalta began a very kind of robust campaign to reach out to the rest of its shareholders and ultimately won the hearts and minds of the shareholder community to support a transformative transaction and, and, you know, defeated the activist entirely. So an example of a very effective defense against activism. Do you expect the record volume of activism in 2018 to carry over to this year? Yes. So we're already nearly at the halfway point in, you know, 2019, and it's already been an incredibly busy year on the activism front. And the expectation is that these high volumes will continue, partly because of the emergence of the the non-activist activists. I think it's a whole new factor that will lead to an uptick in uh, in activism because of the increased professionalization of the short-selling activism phenomenon. You know, it it is now becoming, in the way that traditional activism became a business line, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I think short activism is becoming a business line today, and I think we'll see more of that. And then, of course, you know, as we talked about at the outset, the emergence of activism in the cannabis sector, which we do expect to see in the coming months, will be a driver of, of volumes in this space. Thanks, Patricia. We're happy to have you here. That was Patricia Olasker, a partner at Davies. That's it for this episode of the Activist Insight Podcast, Beyond the Boardroom. If you would like to join us on a future episode, or if you have any comments or questions, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Ilana DeRay. Thanks for listening.